I, since I retired, I'm not doing any ministry activities, and so I hope uh, leading worship and preaching here in Kalamazoo is like riding a bicycle, one of those things you never forget. I find myself these days unable to not think and worry about what's happening in our country and in our nation, and the first reading is uh, can be heard, I guess, as a commentary on what's happening, but it comes from the 1960s. And the second reading is a message of hope to talk about what we mean by religion. The guru reclined on a large yellow pillow in a pose of absolute serenity. Incense burned on the, in the chancel. His white gown enveloped hid the body, leaving visible only the sandals of his feet and a beatific smile peering through an ancient beard. In a soft eastern accent, he said, Love is the way it is. I am one with everything. Enlightenment is here tonight. Noble is the true path. Speak calmly to the butterflies. And the audience swayed with his words, listening to the wisdom of India and moving with the rhythm of the universe. Later, as I was going to the garage to go home for the evening, the guru was standing in the doorway, speaking to his assistant in a hard western accent. He said, you dumb jerk, where's the limousine? We've got all that junk upstairs and you read a damn Ford. Now, I'd better get to the Fairmont by 10 o'clock or you're finished. And suddenly, the gown was a bedsheet, the smile was a contortion of anger, and the beard was a thicket of drivel. I could view him in the mirror as I pulled away, a ridiculous figure in the night. And then David Rankin thinks about what it means to be religious and have some hope in the world. A religion that promises a life without tension, life without conflict, life without suffering, is a religion of passivity and a religion of mediocrity, a religion of insignificance. Besides, everything worth doing in the world is a desperate gamble, a gamble of chance where nothing is certain. What is love? Is it not a wild and sublime speculation which can end in either ecstasy or despair? What is courage? Is it not a hazardous risk of fortune which can end in victory or defeat? What is adventure? Is it not a blind leap in the dark which can end in either joy or disaster? What is faith? Is it not a prayerful flip of the coin which can end in either heaven or hell? If I refuse to play the game, if I refuse to risk myself, if I refuse to throw the dice, I am never really alive. I am then only flesh baking in the sun on a middling plateau with no view 
of the valley and no road to the peak. I must confess that uh, when Rachel told me that the theme of January was Judaism, I immediately began thinking about the ancient stories in Genesis which have haunted my life for years and years. And the one that came to mind was the one, it turns out, as I looked at my notes and files after I thought about doing it and told her what I was going to do, it says Kalamazoo 1997. <laughs> so I wondered whether any of the old timers would remember that sermon and one has already come up and said they've at least thought about the idea that's behind the sermon. So I would like to say that it is a privilege and a joy to return to this room which is much loved and well used and so beautiful to use. The story I want to tell you today and base the insights of the sermon on is actually the sacrifice of Isaac. But most of us who are not Jewish do not know that it is also the Akita, the tale of tales. Some people will argue that it is the most important tale in the Bible. The sacrifice of Isaac. Remember, it wasn't a sacrifice, it was a test, actually. But, a very important story. Now, you also need to know, when we start this story, that Sarah was 90 when the Lord appeared to her and said, you will have a son which you've never had before. She thought it was so funny that she fell down on her face and laughed in the face of God. And then she named her son Isaac, which means joke, or one who will make others laugh. Now you also need to know, as I tell the story, that there are two midrashes, and a midrash is a comment upon the Bible story. One midrash says that Isaac was only seven when this happened. And the other midrash says, no, he was 39. If you go to Kansas City to the great art museum there and see the Reuben painting of the sacrifice of Isaac, he is clearly a grown man. And the story, this particular story begins with a dream that Abraham has. And it says, take your only son and go to the sacred mountain I will show you and there sacrifice him. Abraham had answered when he was called, here am I. And so without a word of protest, he gets up in the morning and very carefully does not mention what he's doing to his wife Sarah and gets two donkeys or a donkey and loads it with wood and two men and his son and proceeds toward the sacred mountain. And it takes three days. What do you think Abraham was thinking during those three days? At one point it is recorded, by the way, I should mention that this is a story that was, was not written down immediately. It was remembered and retold for at least 500 years in the oral tradition, which gives you some idea of how important some people think it is. In any case, it is reported that Isaac says to his father, Father, I can see that we have the wood and that we're going to make a sacrifice, but I do, do not see what's to be sacrificed. And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. Is it a statement of faith? Everybody has wondered. So they get to the mountain, Mount Moriah, and leave the two men behind, and the two of them take the wood to the top of the mountain, and they build an altar of stone, lay on the wood, and Isaac is bound. 
Now, if he's 39, it means that he cooperated with his father to be bound upon the idol. And now he is looking up into the eyes of his father and into the heavens. Now let us go and hear what Eli Wiesel has to say about this particular incident. A double-edged test. God subjected Abraham to it, yet at the same time Abraham forced it on God. As though Abraham had said, I defy you, Lord. I shall submit to your will, but we, let us see whether you shall go to the end. Whether you shall remain passive and remain silent when the life of my son, who is your son, is at stake. And God changed his mind, as the text says, and relented. Abraham won. That was why God sent an angel to revoke the order and congratulate him. him he himself was too embarrassed, says Eli. The way I first heard the story as a boy, my Unitarian minister said, the, guy, the angel said, no, stupid, the ram over there in the bush. And now there's a midrash about the sacrifice of the ram, however. And suddenly we have another coup of theater. Abraham never ceases to astonish us. Having won the round, he became demanding. Since God had given in, Abraham was not going to be satisfied with one victory and continue their relationship as though nothing had changed. <coughs> he turned, his turn had come to dictate the conditions, or else he would pick up the knife again, which had dropped into the stones, and come what may. Now listen to the Midrash. When Abraham heard the angel's voice, he did not cry out with joy or express his gratitude. On the contrary, he began to argue. I wonder if this sets the pattern of Jewish argumentation. He who until now had obeyed with sealed lips suddenly showed inordinate skepticism. He questioned the counterorder he had been hoping and waiting for. Then he demanded proof that it was God's messenger and not Satan's. But one Meshrach said that Satan had tempted him over those three days to turn around. And finally, he simply refused to accept the message saying, God himself ordered me to sacrifice my son. It is up to him to rescind that order without an intermediary. And says the Midrash, God had to give in again. He himself finally had to tell Abraham not to harm his son. This was Abraham's second victory, and yet he was still not satisfied. When Abraham heard the celestial voice ordering him to spare his son Isaac, he declared, I swear I will not leave the altar, Lord, before I speak my mind. Speak, said the Lord. Will, did you not promise me, and listen to these important promises that now haunt the Middle East, did you not promise me that the sin, my descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky? Yes, I did promise you that. And whose descendants will they be? Mine? Mine alone? No, said God. They will be Isaac's as well. And didn't you also promise me that they would inherit the earth? Yes, I promised you that too. And whose descendants will they be? 
Mine alone? No, said God's voice. They will be Isaac's as well. Well then, my lord, said Abraham unabashedly, I could have pointed out to you before that your order contradicted your promise. I could have spoken up, and I didn't. I contained my grief and held my tongue. In return, I want you to make me the following promise, that when in the future my children and my children's children's children through all the generations will act against your law and against your will, you will always say nothing and forgive them. So be it, God replied. Let them but retell this tale, and they will be forgiven. Retell this tale, and they will be forgiven. The text says that now Abraham goes down from the mountain, implying that Isaac is still on the top of the mountain, looking out at the world, having listened to this conversation. I would like to suggest to you that each of us, when we left our parents, we are in Isaac's situation of the next generation who has inherited the values that have given our parents their values. We have also, most of us, become parents. and Therefore, we have been Abraham in the story. Or we have have to figure out how as parents we can civilize our children and give them our values, the values that have sustained our hope and faith throughout our lives. But notice that this is also the story that haunts the Middle East at this point. It says that God will give the Jews a promised land, which is Israel or Palestine, and that they will populate the earth to all generations. A terrible story, a story that must be retold and retold and thought about. And then you have to ask the question about Isaac's name, Joke, he who will make others laugh. Now, I went back and read the next three or four pages in the Old Testament, and it says that Isaac married and had sons and then passed on the blessing, but not to the oldest son, which was the law and the tradition at that time. He passed it on to his second son, Jacob. And it doesn't say anything about making other people laugh. And so now Jacob, I mean, Isaac and Abraham have been to the top of the mountain, and where is the laughter? The last time I preached this sermon to somebody, I was sure that there was laughter in the world. And I said, well, there is laughter, and here's what it's all about. But now, looking at what's happening in our country and with our leadership, I'm not sure that there is laughter that is fun and not cynicism after we've gone to the mountain. If you think of the mountain as our exercise of voting choosing our future, passing our values on to the next generation and to the next four or five or eight years. And we are after the mountain and we have been to the mountain and the question is, is there any laughter? I'm not so sure. Because the laughter I hear is on smaller issues 
the laughter I hear when it's about those issues of climate change, the federal budget that is going to be busted even further. When will our leadership consider what they are leaving for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren? I particularly think about that these days because I have two grandsons, both of whom are becoming very interested in young ladies, and two granddaughters who are going into finishing high school and going to college. And I wonder what the world will be like when they are my age of 81. Will there still be a viable economic situation in the United States? Will there be a Mar El Lago that isn't underwater? What do we do for the islands in the Pacific where people have lived for generations and they are going to be flooded? There are only, in this situation for me, only two things I think that give me some hope. The first is that I have come to think of the world in which we live as an organic whole and not as a mechanical thing. Now, if it's a mechanical thing, it's like a train on its track that goes straight forward and it starts one direction and keeps going. That is until it gets to a turntable, but I don't want to go the, the analogy that far. Me mechanisms repeat over and over and go on and on and on, but an organic model has feedback loops, can change direction, can change their mind, can choose and swings back and forth like a pendulum in some ways. And I hope that the world is like that, but there will be always a cost if we change. I've underthought thought that, what would it happen if half of all the people who were alive today were to die? If climate change continues, I think that may happen. It would be major economic upheaval. And you think about it, though, that all of, our all of our climate problems would be solved if we had half the number of people on the earth? Now, I don't want it to happen to any of us, but, you know, over there in somebody else's yard, of course. The other thing that gives me some hope is that I have, since I've retired, I have joined Rot the Rotary Club, local Rotary Club. And their meetings are just like a Sunday service. They open with a pledge to the flag and an invocation and then singing songs. And then they have uh, passing a bucket to police the public for happy dollars. And then they have a speaker. And then they close with this benediction. They ask, how many Rotarians are in the room? Anybody? One, two, three. Then you all know. What are the things that we think, say, or do? First, is it the truth? Second, is it fair to all concerned? Third, will it build goodwill and better friendships? And fourth, will it be beneficial to all concerned? What would it mean if all our political representatives and senators and presidents use these four questions before they made any decision. I have hope because there are so many Rotarians and Rotarian clubs around the world that this influence will come. Is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendship? Will it be beneficial 
to all concerned. Let us hope that the answer is yes, and the yes goes louder and louder and louder. And if that is so, there will be joyful laughter after we have been to the mountain. Let us all share some laughter in the coffee hour.